This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Kimberly Christman Campbell titled Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century, published by St. Martin's Press. Dr. Christman Campbell is an award-winning fashion historian, curator, and journalist. She has worked as a consultant and educator for museums and universities around the world and is the author of Fashion Victims, Dress at the Court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, Worn on This Day, The Clothes That Made History, and The Way We Wed, A Global History of Fashion, Wedding Fashion, and Red, White, and Blue on the Runway. Dr. Kimberly Christman Campbell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, how so how did you get interested in fashion history? Uh, I've been interested in fashion history since day one, pretty much. I didn't know what to do with it, though. I thought maybe I wanted to be a designer. Um, I loved the history of fashion, but I didn't really know that was a job until I got to college. And by that time, I was all ready to go into journalism. And I took a history class on uh, material culture in the 18th century. And we got to pick any topic we wanted to write about it. And I said, well, can I do a hoop petticoat? And the professor said, sure. And that ended up being my first published article. And I learned that there were grad schools I could go to to do more of this and uh, museums where I could put this degree to work. So I didn't look back after that. Wow, that's so interesting. So what do clothes tell us about society? They tell us a lot about society, particularly about women's history. Um, Clothing is communication. Clothing is diplomacy. Clothing is soft power. It's never just clothes. And I think we all underestimate that at our peril. Yeah, you know, I I always tell my students, you know, the way you dress is the way you speak to the world. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, so what do you think skirts mean in modern femininity? Because that's your top, uh, your title of your book. Well, since the late Middle Ages, when men swapped long robes for short doublets and hose, 
skirts have been synonymous with femininity in Western culture. It's a slightly different story in Eastern culture, but in the 20th century, uh, Paris dictates fashion is all over the world. Uh, so that, that's changed a bit. The skirt is not just one of the oldest forms of clothing, but one with longstanding symbolism surrounding sexuality, childbearing, marriage. Uh, so it's a symbol of femininity on both a, a metaphorical and a strictly visual level. If you want to indicate that a bathroom or a cartoon mouse is female, you put a skirt on it. <laughs> that's, that's really true. So this felt like a really fun book to write, you know, it includes cultural icons, movie stars, political figures, even Star Trek is in there, First Lady, <laughs> and wars and skirts. Um, skirts are through the, the through line that connects all of it. Absolutely. It, it was so much fun to write. Um, and even though I study fashion for a living, I learned some things I didn't know, um, like the surprising history of the poodle skirt or the strapless dress. And just as fashions uh, change over the time, we wait, the way we talk about them and the way we think about them has changed. So a little black dress means something very different to us than it did in 1926. Um, the naked dress has had many meanings over time. And there's a lot we can learn from that evolution. Of course, the word skirts itself has often been used as a synonym for women. Uh, even before the terminology skirts was used, women were called petticoat, petticoat government, a bit of stuff, a bit of skirt. And that language um, and that slang surrounding women and their skirts has always really fascinated me. So it was fun to dig into that a bit in the book. Yeah. And so style... And fashion is connected to moments in history in your book, and it it really works so well. And it begins, of course, with the Greeks, right? Because the Greeks are the beginning in Western Always. civilization, <laughs> right? So the book begins with the Grecian influence or goddess dressing, which I got to say is fun to have <laughs> fun fun there. So can you talk a little bit about what the Grecian influence or goddess dressing means? Yes, well, fashion history doesn't usually fall neatly into 10-year or even 100-year periods, but I do think that when you're talking about a new century or a new millennium, it's always a time for reflection and renewal, and fashion always expresses that. So because the book was a history of the 20th century, I wanted to begin in 1900 or the early 1900s, and it made a lot of sense to start with Mariano Fortuny's Grecian revival gowns. These were radical in their simplicity, doing away with the corsets and petticoats and other underpinnings that had distorted the body uh, in the 19th century. It was a complete fashion reboot, and it set the tone for the more body-conscious and cerebral dresses of the 20th century. So by tapping into this very ancient ideal of beauty and a very ancient way of making clothes, Fortuny infused these very ephemeral garments with the weight of history and created something that was timeless, but also shockingly modern. Yeah, and, and you, you connected also to, uh, to dance, right? A lot of the, the dancers of the, of the time. Yes, because were... these dance allowed you to move in ways that you couldn't before. Right, right. You know, it was really nice to learn a little bit about them too, you know, the these dancers of of the era who you know made these these pleated dresses just move um right or had the long veils or trains that they could manipulate as part of their dance the the fashion and the dance are, are very hard to separate particularly at that time period 
Mm, yeah. And so sports culture also begins in the in earnest in the 20th century mm-hmm. and has a major impact on fashion. So you write that women's tennis has created fashion drama throughout the century. Yeah, I included a whole chapter on tennis skirts in the book because debates over women's fashion and women's bodies have always played out on the tennis court and still do today as Serena Williams can certainly testify. Tennis is one of the oldest sports played by women and it has been co-ed and skirted since day one. And many players have experimented with wearing pants or shorts, but even Serena will tell you, you know, skirts are the way to go. It's, it's easier to play in. It gives you more freedom of movement. And tennis is also, of course, a, a sport very bound by its traditions uh, and, and things like wearing white and wearing skirts and, and playing on grass courts are, are very much a part of that. And I don't think it's an accident that many tennis players, including Williams and uh, people like uh, Suzanne Langlin and Helen Moody, were fashion influencers off the court as well as on, and even had second careers in fashion and textile design. I really enjoyed learning about Langlin. She's fascinating. She's she's one of those key people I write about in all my books. I know, and she wears sneakers, right? Also, you you know, and that's sort of bridging us from skirts into shoes a little bit, but. You know, well, the and fashion- they call them Langlin shoes because she was the, the first and the most prominent person to do it. And, and the Langlin bandeau, I mean, fashions were named after her before she started designing them on her own. Yeah, that's great. I saw last week that Billie Jean King's dress from the Battle of the Sexes that you write about is now on display at the Smithsonian. Yes, that, that's another one I wrote about in uh, my previous book, Worn on This Day. Uh, King was very conscious that that match would be televised and there was a lot of pressure not just to play well but to look good or at least look photogenic while doing it and of course she managed both easily and won the match Mm -hmm. and she yeah she wins the moment also right she Mm -hmm. she wins the she wins it all in both sides right culturally and yes uh, yeah and that's why she's Billie Jean King (laughs) yeah yeah so my favorite is the little black dress I'm not gonna lie that's like my favorite uh fashion piece for myself and also for the book. I really enjoyed that section a lot. So when did the little black dress become the uniform of women's fashion? Well, the little black dress, uh, as we know it, made its first appearance in 1926. It was designed by Coco Chanel. Now, when you and I think of a little black dress, we might picture something short and sexy, but Chanel's little black dress was neither uh, it had long sleeves, a round neck, a knee-length skirt. There's a picture of it in the book as it looked when it appeared in Vogue in 1926. Uh, what was truly radical about it was its simplicity and its um, somber, if practical, color. Before then, uh, black had been associated with mourning. Now, elaborate mourning dress fell out of use during World War I because it was considered wasteful and bad for morale because everybody would have been in mourning. Um, Chanel certainly wasn't the first designer to make an everyday black dress, but hers, again, met the moment. It captured the spirit of its times perfectly. It was the right dress at the right time. Vogue called it a Ford, uh, meaning that like the Model T, it was reliable, affordable, and it only came in one color, black. Yeah, And, and it's slimming and always elegant. It's like never wrong, right? It's, it's Yes, absolutely. But at the time it was, it was considered uh, too simple. It was something that 
you know, you couldn't tell if, if you were looking at a lady or her maid. And that, that made it very shocking and very modern. Yeah. And so the, the little black dress also is, it's, uh, it's, it's got such staying power because then it goes even, you know, when you talk about breakfast at Tiffany's, in yes. that chapter too, exactly. and Bobby Hepburn in the book, <laughs> yeah, and the elegance of it, you know, um, sleeveless or long or short, you know, that uh, the little black dress is, uh, I just think, uh, it's just never wrong. I just love the little black dress, it's my favorite. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the, the dresses in this book, though, you know, I didn't set out to write about fashions that have st stood the test of time, but many of them have. And, you know, they, they were of their moment, but they've also been something that women have loved and worn for decades afterwards. Yeah, it's terrific. And, and World War II had a significant impact on women's fashion. So what were some of the ways that the war changed fashion trends? Well, you know, in the past couple of years, a lot of people, uh, journalists have called me up to ask me to predict the pandemic's effect on fashion. And I, I keep going back to World War II as my crystal ball because there are so many parallels. Uh, during the war, women's lifestyles changed, their values changed, new clothes, as well as certain fabrics and other materials like shoe leather became very hard to attain. Uh, many women went into the military or went into the workforce for the first time and dressed accordingly. A lot of fashion designers went out of business uh, because there just wasn't a market for new clothing anymore. There wasn't a, a way to afford new clothing anymore. And it was, in many cases, restricted by the government, what you could make and how much you could make and buy. Uh, some fashion designers pivoted to making uniforms or utility garments. And then when it was all over, there was this hunger for glamour and luxury and socializing and femininity. Uh, at the same time, though, women had gotten used to a new normal, and that included uh, greater financial independence, social independence, and a more relaxed dress code. And they carried that with them into the post-war era. And that's that was sort of my answer to people who asked me about the pandemic. I said, well, there's going to be this return to maximalism and socializing and dressing up, but we're also going to maybe not dress up for work as much, maybe not wear suits and ties, because people have gotten used to sitting around in their sweatpants and pajamas at home uh, on Zoom meetings. And I, I, I think both those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. You know, and I always think too, like after World War II, the impact of the, uh, the military style skirt and jacket and, uh, you know, during the war, they wore, you know, the shorter skirts because they had the, the restrictions on fabric that's right. right things and um even stockings right silk stockings were not because they mm -hmm. needed the silk for the parachutes and things so mm -hmm. yeah the uh the post-world war ii desire to have a big skirt <laughs> use a lot of fabric right um, that's right and that's how we got the new look in 1947 yeah. christian dior came out with his debut collection it was long full skirt it, uh, sort of uh not corseted waist, but but waist cinched by waspies and rounded shoulders instead of big shoulder pads. It went completely the opposite direction. But at the same time, women did have a more casual um, approach to dressing. Wearing pants became more popular. Uh, a lot of the things that they had done during the war carried on. Um, 
you know, even you though there, there was a return to luxury and glamour. If we were even going to like widen the time frame to like 1900 to 1950, think about how dress how dresses changed. You know, mm. in the beginning of the 20th century, the everything was the you know the high necked, long sleeves, long you know long skirts, and then the exposing of arms, this exposing of legs, it got, it really in 50 years, that was a gr- an enormous amount of change. Yeah, there's a great picture in the book of Suzanne Langland at Wimbledon curtsying to Queen Mary. And Suzanne Langland is wearing a short skirt, sleeveless. She's got, you know, her headband on, I think, and you know, her, her tennis shoes. And then Queen Mary is wearing a hat. She's wearing a corset. She's wearing a long skirt. And just the contrast between those two women, I think, is is so wonderful. And even though the queen had traditionally been the arbiter of fashion, she looked so outdated and so out of place compared to this modern young woman in her short skirt and sleeveless top. Yeah, she does. She looks old fashioned, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's interesting, even today, when you think about the royals today, when they have events and, you know, there have been quite a few royal events in this last few months just because the queen's passing away and things mm. like that and we've been i've been looking at it thinking you know it's um when when we see the royals dressed up with hats and feathers and and more traditional uh early 20th century clothing now it has a meaning right mm. mm-hmm. it kind of means it means the the time of royal the royal greatness in a way it's like hearkening back to an earlier age well, and, I, and i think the, re- the reason why skirts are more popular now than they were say 30 years ago is partly because of the visibility of, of younger members of the royal family who are photographed constantly and you know on the internet everywhere uh, wearing hats and skirts and dresses and and uh, also i think of someone like Michelle Obama, you know, a, a younger, and very fashionable first lady who did not wear jeans around the White House. She, you know, she typically wore skirts um, because that is what's expected of that role. But combine that with the internet and mass media, and that has a huge impact on fashion for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you do write about Diana. Princess yes, of Diana. course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because she really had such an, an enormous influence on fashion. Uh, her influence, so I, I think, was more almost in in casual wear because she she was more notable for for wearing casual clothing uh, than for dressing like a royal, uh, you know. And she was, you know, very young, very fashionable. I I don't think of her though um, as a fashion influencer so much. I mean, I, I work on Marie Antoinette too, and to me, they're they're very similar in that they they were not innovators. They were very high profile women who followed fashion rather than setting it but just because of their high profile they they by default set fashion right right uh, but i i don't think of princess diana as, as sort of an edgy experimental dresser and right. she looked great in clothes you know she i guess she's in clothes right and, and she always dressed appropriately and beautifully um but she wasn't you know isabella blow who was somebody you might decide if you were writing a true history of fashion innovators of, of that time period right right Sure. And so let's talk a little bit about the 60s, the wild 60s and 70s. And so the women's movement gave rise to new iconic clothes. 
Uh, so can you talk a bit about the new fashions reflected in the modern feminist movement? Well, I had a lot of fun writing about the miniskirt and Star Trek. Uh, that, that was a really fun chapter to write. But I, I think most people know that story. Uh, but one story that's a little less well-known is uh, the story of the midi skirt, uh, which was the big fashion story of the late 1960s. And the, this is a, a calf length skirt, uh, very, very much inspired by the movie Bonnie and Clyde, which was set during the de Depression. And the costumes you know, were very different than kind of the day glow mini skirts that were being sold in stores at the time. They were very earthy. There were a lot of cardigans and you know tweed skirts that came down below the knee and that had a big impact uh, a lot of women and men though found that catholic skirt very frumpy and unflattering others though embraced it as a visual symbol of the feminist movement one designer described it as being the skirt for women who don't care what men think about the way they dress and that was a very liberating concept to a lot of women. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And, you know, like, and and also the mini skirt that you write about, um, you know, that is, you know, it's still as it's still so important. Of course, of course. It's still with us very much. Yeah. And, you know, the whole idea that uh, hemlines rise and fall in tandem with the stock market, uh, that was proposed in, in 1926, and it, it does not quite hold up. But hemlines and changing hemlines certainly do have a lot to tell us about changing cultural and uh, social values, uh, about the fashion industry in general. I mean, one of the things that killed the midi skirt was women felt like it was being forced on them by the fashion industry and they rebelled. Uh, there were protests against it because women didn't want to start all over with a new wardrobe every two years. Yeah. And, you know, and that also kind of brings the example that you write about so beautifully, which is the wrap dress. Mm. You know, so how does the wrap dress kind of fit in the time? Well, the wrap dress was one of the big winners to come out of the hemline wars. Um, the the hemline wars referred to this tension between the midi and the maxi and the mini in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, the, the, the backlash to that chaos, uh, which, which very much reflected the chaos happening in other areas of American society uh, was twofold. First, first of all, a lot of women started wearing pants uh, the problem was you weren't allowed to wear pants in a lot of places. Um, we could talk more about pants, but they were not the be-all, end-all solution to 
I don't want to wear a skirt anymore um, because you couldn't actually get get away with them in, in restaurants and workplaces and schools even. Uh, skirts were required in, in many cases. So the wrap dress was a suitably feminine but also feminist alternative. It was easy to wear, go anywhere, uh, knee length. So it was it was not participating in any of this, this hemline nonsense. Uh, and it was a, a modern way of dressing that actually has a much longer history because we saw wrap dresses in the 1930s as well, in the 1940s, as something that women could just put on and go and take off uh, in a hurry if, if they wanted to. And, and that was a very freeing notion that you didn't need to wear 10 different pieces of clothing. You didn't need help getting dressed. You didn't need a man to zip up your zipper. You could just tie it and go. I of love course, the that's dress, another one that's too. still with us today. Yeah, and you know the uh, the wash and wear aspect of it. I love that. You know that it was a fabric that you could just wash. You didn't have to take it to the dry cleaner. And, and it was soft. Uh, it was comfortable. Yeah, uh, it was soft. Pocket, you could throw it in a suitcase. Yeah, uh, and it looks pretty. It looks. It looks. It really almost any figure can really wear it. Absolutely. It's, I think it's close as we've ever come to a universally flattering style. Right. Yeah. And, you know, because it ties, you know, it's sort of like it's forgiving. Like even if you've had your Thanksgiving pie all week, like you can still tie your dress up. <laughs> I just love and I, I just think that it's um, it's so iconic. And uh, Diane von Furstenberg, uh, you know, popularizes that wrap dress with the with these very 70s patterns, obviously, you know, it kind of reflects the, um, you know, that uh, the very mod kind of pattern, uh, soft Jersey fabrics and stuff. I just, I think that that would be my number two. If I had to kind of rank my favorite dresses, <laughs> I would say like the little black dress and the, the wrap dress. dress is like a close second. I like that one too. You could get a, a black wrap dress. Oh yeah, that's, you know. <laughs> Uh, That's what you need. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you. I'll confess. Like I've gone shopping and um, come home with more than one black dress in the same shopping <laughs> trip. That's how much I really like the little black dress. And you'll wear them forever, anywhere you want to go. Yeah, always. And I'll tell you, the the first day of the semester when I start my my new semester in the fall or in the the winter, and I walk into my classroom first time, I always wear a black dress. Uh, and it kind of, to me, is not only confidence, but it tells my class that it, I take it seriously. I take what I'm doing. I take them seriously. I respect them because I've taken time to get dressed. And so first day of class, I always am in a black dress. And some of my colleagues, and whenever they see me on the first day, they're always like, oh, she's in her black dress. Well, you know, Chanel's black dress was described as a uniform, and th this is shortly after World War One, so everybody knew what that meant to to wear a uniform, and it's it's still a uniform. It's it's probably the closest equivalent we have of a suit and tie for men, um, where you can put it on and forget about it, and it looks serious, it looks businesslike, it looks appropriate. Uh, so I I do think there's there's a lot of um, value in having not just one but many <laughs> oh yes and I, I will confess to having more than one so when you were planning this book did you like make a whole list of skirts that you wanted to talk about and then have to cut any did you have to do some editing of your of your list of dresses you wanted to talk about 
Well, the, the original concept for this book was kind of top 10 dresses of the 20th century. And I, I wanted to go a little bit beyond the listicle format and kind of dig into what, what it all means and, you know, skirts in general. Because when you're writing a history of, the, of 20th century fashion, it is a history of skirts. I think there's this uh, kind of cultural myth that the 20th century is when women started wearing pants. And if you were modern or feminist or progressive or serious or a tomboy, you have to wear pants. And as I said, that, that just doesn't hold up because it wasn't really possible. It wasn't really acceptable for women to wear pants until the very late 70s in most contexts. I mean, it, certainly there were outliers who did. Uh, and certainly it was ac acceptable if you were a suburban housewife or if you were a rich woman on your country estate riding horses. There were definitely contexts where pants were acceptable, but they were not acceptable in public or in the workplace for a very long time. Uh, so I, I started appreciating just how important skirts were, dresses were, and how, you know, not only is that narrative that feminists wear pants incorrect, but it, it does a great disservice to the women who wore and made um, dresses and did so in a, in a very modern and progressive way. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher and I teach women's history. So whenever I read a book like this, I always think, how can I incorporate it into my class? So did you think at all about how this would reach students um, or history students or, you know, be used in any kind of curriculum? Uh, apart from fighting for more footnotes, no, I, I actually wanted this to be for a general audience who might be interested in history, but not know a lot about fashion, or who might be interested in fashion, but not really know about the history that shapes it. Uh, so I, I definitely intended it for, for a more general audience, although I would be delighted you know, if, if students uh, found it valuable as well. And uh, I, I do write academic books as well as trade books, and I'm always you know, pushing for more footnotes and more more pictures um, because I want it to have that intellectual grounding uh, that some fashion books don't always have or, or don't always need. I mean, there are a lot of picture books out there that are great picture books, but don't necessarily give you the the historical context that's so important. I just think that a book like this really reaches students who think history is, you know, George Washington crossing mm -hmm. the Delaware and that's it. You know, I think that you can really, really connect with students and reach students with history that speaks to what they're interested in and really go, they makes them go, oh, that's so cool. Cause I love clothes and I, I, I'm really interested in it. You know, I think I find it as a really fantastic and effective way of reaching history students. And, um, I have a, they have to do a project in my course and, um, often the, they have to pick a topic of, of a woman to do some research on and, and they have to actually produce their own podcast and that's the project. Fun. And uh, often they want to do, um, they want to do somebody who's either involved in the cosmetic industry, like Bobby Brown. Mm. Uh, they want to do designers. Mm -hmm. They want to do painters, uh, women who are in the arts, 
Mm, um, field. Yeah. And so this is, I'm definitely going to be suggesting uh, the book for my, my classes and bring some of these stories in because I think my students would really respond to the way that fashion has a history, just like food has a history. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I actually bring in, um, also I bring in um, cookbooks, history, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I read them old recipes and things and, you know, everything has a cultural meaning mm -hmm. and tells us so much about who we are. So I always think that the clothes we wear says a lot about who we are. But for, for women's history, you you have to look at the fashion because they didn't have access to more conventional means of communication or expressions of power, you know, whether we're talking about the government or the military or the church, the academy, you won't find them in those traditional archives. You have to look at how they're communicating through through fashion, through beauty. And uh, it, this is this requires a lot of work. It's not always obvious. It's not always a single archive or a single document. You've, you've really got to dig deeper and be very interdisciplinary. And, and Fashion Studies does that. Mm, yeah. And it also says something about femininity, right? It says what it means to be a woman, mm. what it means to be, um, uh, what we, what it says about uh, how we identify. And that kind of leads to one of my later questions. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going with that. <laughs> so I told you that I love the little black dress and I love the wrap dress. So what would you pick? Oh, that is so hard. Um, some of them aren't available to me anymore, of course. I might choose something from yours new look collection. Uh, but as I said, so many of these game-changing styles have stood the test of time. Um, the Fortuny Delphos, the Von Furstenberg wrap dress, the Hervé Leger bandage dress, uh, and of course a wide variety of little black dresses and strapless styles, they're still on sale today and still worn today. Uh, for my book launch, I wore a Tory Burch reproduction of a Claire McArdle dress. And I've been waiting a long time for someone to reboot Claire McArdle. And it looks like Tori Burch is making that happen. So I, I guess that's the one I, I did too. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, 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 one of the other pictures in the book um, is of uh, Sex in the City's uh, Sarah Jessica Parker mm. in her naked dress, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, think about how much that show did for, <laughs> for skirts. <laughs> I, I think at the time we all thought it was a bit silly and, oh, she's wearing a ballet skirt or she's wearing this babe slip dress. Um, but yes, looking back, we actually did take away a lot from that. I know. Uh, it was easy to make fun of at the time, but, but you know, look at, look at the impact on the shoe industry alone. Yeah. And, you know, if fashion is fun, at the same time, it says something and, you know, think about just being in that wardrobe room of Sex and the City. I mean, the probably the racks of clothes there would just make your mouth water, I'll bet, <laughs> you know. Um, so in the conclusion of the book, you talk a little bit about, you take a little, it's almost like a, a little bit of a, of a left turn here and talk about upskirting. So I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about what upskirting is? Well, I wanted to bring the book into the 20th century, or the 21st century, rather, because it's all about fashion in the 20th century. Uh, but of course, this all impacts the present. And upskirting, meaning um, taking a photograph up somebody's skirt without their permission, certainly existed before 2002. 
but the launch of <laughs> camera phones in that year made it much easier to take and you know, more importantly to share upskirt photos. And victims of upskirting found that this new technology was not often covered by existing laws about voyeurism or pornography. Uh, so now, 20 years later, upskirting has been legislated out of existence as much as it's possible to do. Um, but, it, but its impact continues to be felt just recently. And I'm, I'm sorry this happened too late for me to get it into the book. Uh, but Hillary Clinton revealed that she started wearing pantsuits in part because of an upskirting incident that happened on a state visit to Brazil in 1995 when she was still first lady. She was sitting on a couch and the press was sort of down below and took pictures of her and you could see her underwear and these were going to be used in a lingerie ad in Brazil and it became this minor international incident. Uh, so that explains a lot about her own personal style. And I, I think a lot of women who have dealt with uh, that and maybe even continue to deal with it, um, you know, have some, have some complicated feelings about wearing skirts for good reason. I also talk about the Apple store and its glass staircase and the, the rise of the glass staircase as an architectural feature and what that means for, for women who wear skirts. Uh, and it, it's, it's become this classic example of uh, the, the dearth of women in tech and how that, that has these very serious consequences for all of us. Mm, wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. So what's the future of the skirt? Well, in 1971, the designer Halston predicted that pants for women, which were a new thing at the time, were going to be with us forever. Uh, I don't think he was wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that pants are going to replace skirts anytime soon. Uh, in fact, skirts have actually become more fashionable in the 2000s than they were in the 1980s and 90s. And that's due to a number of factors, uh, partly because pants are no longer seen as a controversial right or a statement. Uh, you can be powerful and feminist without wearing a pantsuit. Uh, moreover, skirts are now embraced by men on a scale that we haven't seen in the past, even during previous flirtations with unisex fashion in the 1960s and the 1990s. So the last chapter of my book, after talking about upskirting and glass staircases, uh, talks about skirts as menswear. Yeah, I think that was a great way to end. I have to say, I thought it was brilliant to to bring it to that that be the conclusion because you know being on a college campus as I am every day, um, certainly it, young men are embracing that. And uh, I'm definitely seeing, you know, that, that's part of what I think is so great about fashion too, is, is watching what everybody else wears and thinking about, oh, that's interesting. Um, but we, we've often talked about unisex and androgynous fashion, uh, but we mean women wearing men's clothes, never the other way around. And I think if we are interested in true, you know, gender fluidity, true, uh, unisexuality it's got to go both ways oh my god that's your next book <laughs> you know harry styles right and you know the that's the that's the new that's the the way that fashion and society are mirrors of each other well that that's the end of this book and it, it'll be interesting to see you know 20 years from now whether whether that's still happening but i <laughs> I, I, I think maybe it will oh uh, do you have another project on the horizon um, I am working on a project. I don't have a, a publication date for it yet. It's a very long-term uh, 
project and biography of a designer called Tester Weinberg, who's a, a sort of forgotten American um, hero of mine. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll all look forward to reading that one as well. I want to thank Kimberly Chrisman Campbell for joining me on the show today. This was the most fun read I have had all year, honestly. <laughs> so buy this for your fashionista, your historian in your life, or yourself. I think you'll have a really good time reading it. Thank you for a great discussion. We've Thank been, you, uh, It's my pleasure. We've been talking with Kimberly Chrisman Campbell about her new book, Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century, published by St. Martin's Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>